Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Pandemics are hard for everybody, but they are harder in some places than others, I guess. is the is, This is... Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lind and Dylan Scott from Vox.com. Uh, Dylan has just published uh, what I guess is the first piece in a, in a bigger project on sort of pandemic lessons learned uh, from around the world. The first piece is about Korea. I thought it was super duper interesting, and I think it's going to be the main focus what we talk about. So Dylan, can you tell us what, what have you learned about Korea? Sure. Yes. So, uh, yeah, as part of this project, uh, the pandemic playbook, which you can find on vox.com, we are taking a look at six countries around the world and, and focusing on a specific part of their COVID-19 response. So rather than like try to figure out the six best responses and and sort of all and all the complexity that that would entail, uh, we thought we'd like zero in on kind of specific countries that had specific strategies that stood out. And so we took a look at South Korea because I think there's a good case to be made that they have set up the most sophisticated COVID testing, contact tracing, and isolating program anywhere in the world. So South Korea was interesting to me because just a few years ago, in 2015, uh, they lived through a MERS outbreak. It was actually the worst uh, outbreak uh, outside of the Middle East. Uh, MERS, if if folks don't remember, sprang up in the Middle East, and and then there was a a brief outbreak in Korea. Uh, It was another coronavirus uh, that actually appeared to be even more deadly uh, than COVID-19 has proved to be. It caused a real crisis in South Korea uh, because they had a patient, their patient zero, visited a bunch of hospitals before anybody figured out that he was infected with MERS. And so he was infecting, you know, the patients he was rubbing shoulders with and the healthcare workers he came into contact with. And so the country was, uh, had a, had a real kind of panic. They, they, you know, South Koreans learned what social distancing was back in 2015. They had to shut down the economy. And so people were really pissed off, to be frank, like in talking to Koreans about the MERS experience, you know, I think it became there. People were really angry with the government 
This came just a year after the ferry disaster that had killed more than 300 people and led to a lot of protests over government incompetence. So South Koreans were really frustrated just with the government in general and its ability to handle a crisis. Uh, they had remembered SARS, you know, a lot of them remembered SARS in 20, uh, 2003 when South Korea was considered like a standout in how they contained that outbreak. So the fact that MERS was was comparatively kind of a disaster uh, led to a real push for some kind of action and reform or overhaul of the uh, public health protocols in the country. And so the government, you know, as one of the people I talked to put it, you know, the easiest thing to do when everybody's demanding action is to pass a bunch of laws. And so the South Korean government actually passed a package of 48 public health reforms uh, after the MERS outbreak. And that, you know, it entailed a bunch of different things. They had put a bunch of new investments towards like diagnostics, towards testing and that kind of thing. Uh, they increased the number of isolation units and uh, infection control units in hospitals across the country. But the, the thing that really, I think, stood out to people and became really important during COVID was they gave the government a bunch of new authority to, to basically track people for contact tracing. So as people probably know by now, though maybe they didn't before COVID, contact tracing is the process of you know, somebody tests positive for a disease, you go and interview them, you find out, you know, who else they have been in contact with, who, who else they may have exposed. Uh, and then you go to those people, you let them know about their possible exposure, and you ask them to isolate so that they don't spread the virus to anybody else. Now, obviously, you know, in the US uh, and in Korea before MERS, that depended entirely on people being willing to cooperate. Um, you know, people, it's just interviews, you're, you're reliant entirely on what people tell you. And there was actually one specific example during MERS where somebody lied about attending a business conference with a thousand other people. And that kind of like that, that created this whole panic. And that was part of the reason that the country had to shut down is because they quickly realized like, wait, we actually don't know everybody who's been exposed or who may be uh, infected with this disease. And, and they kind of lost containment really quickly. And so in response to that, the lesson that the government took away from that uh, little mini emergency was that we need to do mandatory contact tracing, basically. And so these these reforms that passed after MERS gave the government the authority to, you know, pull somebody's credit card transactions, to pull CCTV footage, to pull cell phone location data in order to be able to uh, trace a person who tests positive for a disease and uh, and figure out who else they may have exposed. My sense is that this was sort of a you know, they wanted to do something big. They wanted to show that, like, they recognized the mistakes that had been made uh, during MERS. But nobody necessarily gave a, a ton of thought to what that might actually look like in practice. So fast forward to 2020. COVID is starting to percolate in, in Wuhan, China. The country, South Korea, you know, with this trauma from MERS fresh in their minds, acted really quickly and really decisively uh, to try to set up a, a testing, tracing, and isolating program. So in late January, they met with a bunch of biotech firms and said, like, if you guys, you know, by then the, the COVID genome had been sequenced and they were like, if you guys can come up with a diagnostic test that can detect this disease, we'll prove it really quickly. And within like a week, oh, at least one company had come up with an effective COVID-19 test and, you know, within a couple of weeks, uh, they were doing the most tests of any country in the world. And while the U.S. was 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 struggling uh, to get our own tests going. And so, you know, testing got rolling really quickly. 
in uh, late February, there was an outbreak in uh, Daegu, which is a, a, well, the fourth largest city in South Korea. It was linked to a kind of secretive Christian religious movement. And so that's when, you know, they already had the testing going and, and they were quickly increasing capacity. When there was this outbreak at this church, uh, that's when the contact tracing program really got going. Uh, you know, they got a list of church members. They called in a bunch of conscripted uh, military personnel to start make, doing interviews and, and tracing the possible people who who had been exposed. And then the third piece of this is is isolation. So because uh, you want, you know, once you've identified who has the virus or might have the virus, you want them to uh, be able to uh, isolate themselves so they don't infect anybody else. And so what South Korea did was they actually contracted with Samsung and LG, you know, some of these major corporations that are based there. And uh, those companies happen to have like training dormitories in uh, the city. And so what they did, they, they basically signed a contract with those companies. And for people who were deemed at high risk, uh, they were rather than isolating at home. And even if you're trying to be careful, maybe you accidentally expose a, a grandparent or a child or a loved one or whatever, uh, they were able to go to these isolation centers, stay there kind of through the period at which they could potentially be spreading the virus. And then eventually they were allowed to go home. And, and ultimately, by the end of March, about 3,000 people isolated in these isolation centers. And so long, very long, that, that's a, a long story. But the, the real point is through this testing, tracing, and isolating program, South Korea really quickly was able to crush its COVID-19 outbreak. Like, you know, COVID showed up in South Korea earlier than almost anywhere else. Um, this was, you know, they, they identified this kind of important patient at this church group on February 17th, which is, you know, really just when it was landing in the U.S. as well. But because they were kind of, they had a plan and they were able to act quickly, their first wave was about one tenth as big as the United States was. Even this, and this is adjusting for population. They, at their worst, had about uh, about five hundred new cases, and you know because they were able to to kind of crush that initial outbreak. As you know, other clusters have popped up over the the last year. They've been able to act quickly through testing and tracing and isolating to stamp them out. So, like today. Fewer than 2,000 South Koreans have died from COVID-19. And, you know, even though they have been a little bit slower in rolling out their vaccines than the U.S., they're currently averaging like 700 new cases every day, whereas the U.S., even with all our success in vaccine administration, we're still averaging like 70,000 cases every day. My understanding is that things are much more open in yes, Korea right. than they are. Because I, I think this is important, right? That like, one of the things that I like so much about this piece is that I feel like it's a, it's a rediscovery of like a lost universe of, of knowledge that there was a time in March and April of 2020 in the United States when people were talking about Korea all the time. Right. Cause it was like, Oh, Korea has this big outbreak. It's like, Oh, Korea is getting its handle on its outbreak. Oh, Korea is so good with the testing. And then in America, we had a time we were behind on testing, but we talked a lot about testing. It was like, you got to ramp up the testing. You know, where's the testing? Right. And this was a big critique of Trump. Like, what's he doing on the testing? And we all started measuring our testing. And Biden was like, we got to scale up the testing. That was sort of the, the technological shorthand for what Korea was doing, right? But then at a certain point, it was like the pandemic had been pretty well contained in Korea and sort of not in the United States. Mm -hmm. And 
testing's not magic, right? Like we scaled up our testing, but it didn't end the pandemic because we weren't like doing other things to to block it. And then, you know, I, I always sort of do a look back. I'm like, what was what was happening in, in the takes a year ago as we now start lapping ourselves mm-hmm. in the in the pandemic? And you know, this is around the time when Brian Kemp starts moving to reopen. Uh, stuff in Georgia, right? And the Atlantic runs an article headlined Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice, right? <laughs> the implication of which is is twofold. One is that this reopening in Georgia is going to go really badly. But the other implication is that like some other states with wiser political leadership are going to like not do this, right? Mm. And that, you know, I, I don't know what the hypothetical control state was, but that like, we're not going to just open things up. We're going to do something. And what's happened since that time in America is like a lot of people yelling at each other and a lot of ill will and a lot of hard feelings, basically in the dispute between should restaurants be open at 25% capacity or 100% capacity? Should masks be mandatory in supermarkets or just supermarkets mandate that the customers wear the mask. You know what I mean? Like th- mm-hmm. there's this kind of narrow dialogue and you look at like the bluest of the blue states and they're doing like way worse than Korea, right? Yes. Because the actual Korean solution was like not what the like take COVID seriously states in America were doing. Like it's actually like a different set of policies whose aim was to extinguish the pandemic, or at least I I guess it's an epidemic. I mean, to to locally suppress it um, so that people, like you say in the article, that like we've been like out of the office for white collar workers so long that I think it's now questionable whether people are ever going to go back. (laughs) Uh, Whereas in Korea, they, they went back to the office relatively quickly and Pretty like fast. The, yeah. the subways are crowded and you know all this stuff and it's like what liberals used to say right in april of 2020 when it was like oh there's no trade off between public health and the economy because what we right. need to do is get control of the virus and then we can reopen right and like that's not that, that's like not what's happened in right. not just in the united states right but like it hasn't been the the sort of progressive practice And then I think when you read about what Korea did, it's like pretty clear why it hasn't been the progressive practice. Like, I think if you went to the state legislature in, I don't know where, Oregon, I mean, whatever you want to call, like, like, you know, if you were like, okay, here's what we're going to do, right? We're going to have tech companies monitor where everyone is all the time. (laughs) We're going to have a lot of mandatory isolation of people, right? Like, it's a total non-starter, I think. It's like, it's like off the map. Of American politics. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And and to your point, I think what's key about what South Korea did is like they suppressed an initial outbreak. Like they had this cluster pop up. They knew that they were at risk of kind of this outbreak spiraling out of control. And so they they focused all of their energy and attention and this this playbook that they had for test trace isolate on Daegu and these in this outbreak. And once they got that outbreak under control by testing, tracing, and isolating, then they did still have some, you know, people still wore masks. There were still some um capacity limitations on businesses. But like 
because you have suppressed the initial outbreak, you know, the, the virus isn't just spreading unsurveilled, uh, you know, r- running through the community. You can take these mitigation measures once you've suppressed the virus initially. And like that helps to limit the virus's opportunities to spread, you know, for new clusters to appear. But in the United States, as you were saying, Matt, like, we never even, we didn't do the suppression part to get to the mitigation part. Like we let the suppression completely, you know, the virus completely escaped whatever suppression measures we tried to, to take. And so by the time we were talking about mass mandates and business closures and the like, they had a limited utility because we'd already lost control of the virus. And I do think like to your last point about like how you know, there are certainly parts of the Korean model that that would be difficult to apply in the U.S., uh, especially when it comes to contact tracing and the government surveillance involved. But I do think it's worth noting that, like, the first part of this program is testing. And there's not really, to me, a good reason why the U.S. testing situation was such a disaster. Because when you look at what South Korea did, it was it was actually like this sort of idealized version of like a public-private partnership. Like they just brought in a bunch of private biotech firms and they kind of had this burgeoning uh, biotech boom since MERS. And they said, like, you guys figure out how to, you know, test for and diagnose this disease. If you can prove that it works, uh, you know, we'll approve it and we'll we'll do these kind of mass purchases of testing. Um, but like we're going to kind of hand this responsibility over to the to the private sector and kind of let them run with it with some government oversight, of course. In the U.S., we had this really centralized process where the CDC, they were in charge uh, of developing a test. You know, they actually actively like discouraged. There was some scientist in Seattle who was like, you know, maybe I could actually figure out how to come up with a COVID test that would work. And they actually actively discouraged that that guy's work. And then, as it turned out, one, even though the South Korea and the CDC had their tests approved on the same day, the CDC test was flawed, as it turned out, like once we started sending it out to labs um, and trying to use it in the real world. And because we'd had this super centralized process where the CDC like didn't seem interested in working with anybody else and developing this test, we didn't have any other options. Whereas South Korea, like they approved one test on February 4th and a, a week later they approved another test. And I think by the end of February, they'd approved a couple more. And so, you know, I, I certainly think it's it's worth exploring how much uh, some of the contact tracing stuff could, could ever be applicable in the U.S. But it, it, I feel like it's worth emphasizing that the U.S., you know, tripped itself up on that first step, the testing part, in a way that I don't think was inevitable at all. And you could certainly imagine that if we had better surveillance of the virus in those early days, you know, maybe we could have done more targeted contact tracing, you know, that didn't require the extraordinary measures that we've seen in South Korea. Right. I mean, I think it's that's exactly the kind of distinction that came to mind for me looking at this kind of alternate history was thinking about, I mean, it's not like in addition to all the problems with testing that you've just laid out, Dylan, you know, the downstream effects of that were that contact tracing was completely undermined in the U.S. because for several weeks during the first wave of the pandemic, people who didn't have COVID symptoms were actively discouraged from getting tested, uh, which made it absolutely impossible to really evaluate community spread until it had you know, been percolating for weeks. So you can absolutely kind of make the argument that there would have been more than one successful policy path to containment and that like this, that, you know, that a world in which uh, people were able to 
engage in effective contact tracing that like if you had had like a model of, hey, Washington, because the Seattle doctors were able to develop their own test because, you know, there were enough tests available, got its pandemic under control, whereas New York and California didn't. This is a good reason why you should, you know, be enthusiastic about contact tracing. You might not have needed the like existing legal structure mandating such you know, submission in order to have a fairly effective contact tracing regime. Like you can run those hypotheticals. It's not certain by any means. And I think, frankly, what we saw in the U.S. domestic context is that most of the deliberations about, okay, you know, different states taking different approaches uh, because of their political pre-inclinations have ended up with everybody gets hit really badly sooner or later. So it's certainly not a foregone conclusion that it would have worked, but it's totally fair to say that like the true center-right response, if you if you want to attribute this to like, oh, you know, America is a center-right nation, whereas mm-hmm. other countries are just more willing to, you know, see things in a less hyper-individualistic framework, like the true center-right response has never been tried is kind of a valid argument that could be made. But I do also kind of want to challenge a little bit because, you know, the privacy trade-offs, you know, that having kind of already been baked into the Korean model, as you described, weren't because of like some innate South Korean collectivism. They were because of this very specific ex- historical experience. And so I would love it if you could talk a little bit more about in your reporting, to what extent was this seen as something that was at all politically controversial or that people did see there as being a trade-off um, and, you know, how was that kind of values dispute? Like, how did that play out in the context of Korean politics instead of, you know, in the comparative context? No, that's a good question. And I, I certainly wouldn't want to presume to like have intimate knowledge of kind of in, internal Korean politics, though I've, I've certainly been more exposed to it by reporting this story than I ever had been before. Um, and, and something interesting that I feel like I picked up on was... It is not, as you say, like it's not just some kind of like, you know, uh, fetishized collectivism um, in, in that's innate in South Koreans that explains this. But my sense was that I thought that like South Koreans, they they can be skeptical of their government. They will they will challenge their government if they if they think it's doing something wrong. But like they still like expect their government to do things. And they kind of they have they do have some implicit trust that like the government can do things. It's more like if the government is doing something badly, they want it to be fixed or they want it to be changed. And so I I do think that that just baseline level of trust probably made somewhat of a difference. I do think, you know, you can't overstate the trauma of MERS. And like, even though, you know, in the end, we're talking about a couple hundred cases and about 40 deaths, uh, you know, part of the reason MERS fizzled out is because it is more deadly than COVID-19. But still, it was a very traumatic experience. There was a heavy economic toll. The country had to shut down. So that was very fresh in people's minds. And I think when you kind of combine those two things together, it it does seem as if these measures were broadly, you know, at least accepted if maybe popular isn't quite the right word. But, But people, I think it seems as if South Koreans, in a somewhat maybe unique way, understood the the nature of the threat and were willing to accept uh, these kinds of you know, this kind of public health monitoring in order to you know prevent the the worst case scenario from being realized there was a poll 
in May of 2020 uh, that found about nine out of 10 South Koreans thought it was acceptable to disclose patients' information to the public uh, so that people would know about their potential risk. And just, you know, I, when I talk, I did talk to civil, there are certainly some Koreans who were very concerned about the potential intrusions into people's privacy. And there was been a, a constitutional challenge filed against the way that the government used some of those post-MERS reforms. But in talking to those advocates, they said, you know, it's, it's been kind of a lonely fight. Like people are, people are willing to make sacrifices uh, for their health. And so, you know, we certainly, they, it certainly seemed like they felt a bit like they were, they were on an island in, in being actively skeptical of these measures or in, in pushing back against them. So, you know, I, I don't think there's a, a simple explanation for that, that kind of solidarity that I do think South Koreans experienced in those early days of COVID. Um, but it is probably to your point, Dara, like probably an important distinction between the U.S. experience where I know early on we all were feeling pretty good about how many people were wearing masks and how people were, how many people were voluntarily social distancing. But it seems like our our solidarity deteriorated pretty quickly. Um, and that obviously, you know, presented problems as the outbreak unfolded. Well, let, let's take a break and, and I want to come back to, to that point. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. So the role of, you know, you say like the, the trauma of, of MERS in this is interesting to me uh, because obviously the United States has had a very traumatic impact uh, with COVID. And I would bet a large sum of money, a very large sum of money, that we do not come out of the trauma of COVID with a South Korea-style 
much more intensive surveillance regime, right? <laughs> Which makes you think that part of what we're talking about here is is path dependence and some kind of elite leadership question that I don't totally know how to get my my hands around. But like, obviously, it's not just that MERS was traumatic, but that people's understanding of the MERS trauma was that the taking pandemics more seriously option was this more intensive surveillance, right? Whereas I just, I don't think that's the common understanding of COVID, right? If you go find somebody, you know, uh, I don't know, like a college graduate, somebody who reads internet takes and listens to podcasts, and mm-hmm. you ask them to like write down on a piece of paper, what does it mean to take COVID more seriously as a policy matter? They're going to say mask mandates, closing restaurants, closing schools, right? And so if they, if you ask them, like, do you feel traumatized by COVID and fired up to take the next pandemic more seriously? They're going to say, yeah, I want more mask mandates. I want more restaurant closures. I want more school right. closures, right? And then if you ask somebody else, you say, well, no, I feel traumatized by my kids having been out of school, by my business having been ruined. So I want us to take it less seriously next time. And you'd have to like find some real pandemic heads somewhere to get somebody to say, what I mean by saying I am traumatized by this and I want us to take it more seriously next time is smartphone tracking data, right? right. Not just like, Testing, but you know, so you you have a story here, right? There's a guy who lies about where he was to a contact tracer because he didn't mm-hmm. want to admit he was at a gay bar, mm-hmm. and he went to jail. Yeah, six months. Right. Yeah. That seems unlikely to me, right? Because so much of the U.S. Uh, public health community sort of has its origins in um, HIV/AIDS stuff epidemiologically, right? Mm-hmm. In which like catch people lying about their activity at gay bars and send them to prison. Like that's an idea that was on the table, right? It was like mm-hmm. a right-wing authoritarian homophobic idea that we need to like trace all these people down, we need to quarantine them, right? And like the whole genesis of American public health is like don't do that, like mm-hmm. harm reduction, right? Like all this kind of stuff that I think it's like totally correct and appropriate, but like did not support like harsh measures to contain a respiratory pandemic in any really meaningful way. So I now feel like, I mean, it's it's weird, right? Because it's like, we'll say, we'll all say, you know, not just about Korea, but Taiwan and a number of other countries that like previous experiences with, with pandemics set the stage for a more aggressive response. But like, we're not looking back at like no. our traumatic experience and being like, all right, next time, you know, we yeah. got to start locking people in isolation wards. Right. I mean, it's 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 both the kind of what would it mean to pass a this can't happen again package. And then there's just the fact of, frankly, the idea of the United States Congress passing a package of laws that change things for a situation that has recently stopped being a crisis. Oh, yeah, could become a crisis again at some point uh-huh, in the future right. is like not how Congress has worked for arguably for ever, certainly not for the last decade. And, you know, at best we get 
commissions, right? Mm -hmm. To act, like that's kind of the the retroactive tool that the federal government has turned to in the 21st century is to when the government screws up, it looks at how it screwed up and, you know, produces some recommendations that may or may not be acted on by various agencies and that are basically taken at OIG level of seriousness. So there is, you know, I do keep coming. I, I think that that so much of this can really be explained by what you were talking about earlier, Dylan, is the expectation of South Koreans that their government will be able to tackle problems and the do better response when it doesn't tackle those problems. Because on the one hand, it seems to me that like when we were talking earlier about, you know, the finite solidarity uh, and, you know, kind of voluntary compliance in the American context, so much of that seems, and this is something that we've talked about on the, on the weeds before, like the, The proposition in spring of 2020 was do these things that are going to suck for a finite period of time while we scale up PPE production and test capacity, and then we will have this alternate structure in place. And for reasons, you know, partly because of the failures to scale those things up, partly because of the political constraints in a kind of mass test and trace model that, you know, hadn't really been fully aired out when we were told that it was going to be a very seamless transition. And partly because, frankly, the U.S. was a very big country where the first wave didn't hit everywhere in the same way. And so a lot of this pandemic has seemed like everywhere in America has to learn about COVID the hard way. Um, Like every individual person has to, you know, who is skeptical about the seriousness of the virus, you know, the, the, the frequency with which you will see posts from like, minor celebrities or whatever saying, oh, wow, this COVID is no joke. Wear a mask. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like they're really there shouldn't have needed to be that kind of everybody has to learn it for themselves. But it does come, I think, partly out of the fact of not everybody got hit by the first wave. So for some people, this was an academic matter before it was an existential one. But also because the solidarity, I think, is like comes from the reliability of we're doing this as part of a social compact with our government. And the fact that, you know, the earliest government failures on COVID in the U.S. context were exactly the kinds of failures that regulation skeptics predicted would happen, I think really lent itself to the idea that it wasn't aberrational for the government to be failing in its response, that this was what like that Americans kind of expect their government to get tied up in red tape and to be slow to move and to not be able to protect everybody sufficiently or to like use these very blunt tactics, you know, as, as a way to try to control the spread of things or, or to not care enough about small businesses, whatever. Like it played into the ways that a large number of Americans expect government to fail. You know, that does strike me as a as a relevant difference and also probably a big like a, it's hard to think of a world in which Americans at this point were saying we demand that Congress instead of like dealing with the problems that we still have as a result of the economic, you know, like like the existing kind of crisis level issues uh, that they spend a lot of legislative time and energy on working out a better pandemic resilience plan for the next one. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely true. And and you're hitting on, you know, what was going to always be a difficulty for us in producing this project, which is like, you know, there are just certain immutable characteristics of countries, whether they be physical or social, that have a factor in how the pandemic plays out. 
there's just a, a matter of luck, like where the virus lands and how prepared that specific place might be to respond to it. And I, I, I also kind of can't imagine for those reasons the, the American public uh, making the same kind of demands on Congress that, that South Korea did after MERS. I do think like to Matt's point, like something I've kind of gotten that's really been getting me kind of chest up as I've been finishing this story, I guess, is is this idea that like, I think, Matt, you're absolutely right. Like nobody seems to be interested in looking backwards at how we might learn from the mistakes that we made and apply those lessons to the next uh, emergency, which we all know will inevitably come uh, and maybe sooner rather than later. Uh, but I also think like, I think that is such a mistake because even if, like, it's very easy, and I, I've been fascinated by it too, and it was one of the most interesting things to report out, but it's very easy to kind of get to, to focus on the kind of punitive and mandatory parts of the, the contact tracing program. But again, I come back to both the testing that I talked about before and how that helped alone help South Korea get ahead of COVID in the way that the U.S. failed to do. There was a, there's also the isolating piece of it, which is like the government uh, sent people groceries, sent people toiletries if they were isolating at home. They had like an app where they could message with a, a government worker just to check on how they were doing. They offered them like psychological counseling if they were having a hard time while they were isolating, like there were these more, I think of both the testing and the isolating side of it as like, there were just sort of these more easy things that to just help people uh, both, well, you know, the testing helps everybody by by getting a full picture of where the disease is. And then you can do things to help people and make it easier that for them to isolate. And like, it seems like those would be parts of the, the South Korean model that in theory would be very easily uh, translatable to the U.S., I absolutely, on the contact tracing side, it's impossible to imagine uh, stuff like mandatory cell phone tracking or you know people pulling CCTV footage um, being ever palatable to either Congress or the public. Um, but you know, maybe if we have just a general, if people have more trust in a system that can roll out tests quickly and is providing them with support when they isolate, maybe you start to get more voluntary uh, participating in contract tracing efforts, which like. Though certainly South Korea, you know, they've had these extraordinary authorities uh, in the in the event that somebody is misleading or refusing to cooperate. Like in talking to contact tracers there, you know, people buy into the idea of contact tracing. Most people, my sense is most people just provide information voluntarily and participate without any of the kind of friction that might be introduced by the government surveillance uh, side of it. So that, that's like I think this this project is really important. And I think I think that what people in our line of work take away from this experience is going to be important. And it's why, like, I don't just want to lean on the, oh, it would be politically unthinkable side of it. Like, I'm saying, like, it is politically unthinkable, like, in our current right. politics. If you had asked me two years ago, will the government of Washington, D.C. be able to get most people to wear masks on their face for a year outdoors? I would have said no. And I want to add, all the leading scientific experts are going to say that's actually not useful or important. <laughs> and be like, nope, they'll do it anyway. And I'll say, wait, and it's going to be socially coded that ignoring the science is listening to the science, right? And be like, <laughs> oh, that's really weird. That is odd to me, right? And it is odd, but I totally understand how it happened, right? It's like if you if you live through it, you see the path-dependent series of things such that 
walking down 13th Street with a mask on after being vaccinated is like the quote unquote, listen to the, the, the science view, right? And like, I think we need to, as a collective takes industry, like pivot ship a little bit. And like, it's not like what we did was super duper civil libertarian, right? Like on aggregate, I think the Koreans ended up with like more personal freedom than yeah. we did, right? Yeah. That like half-assing it for 14 months is like not a great solution to people's privacy and, and civil liberties type concerns, right? And you look at like a, a state like Maine, right? Which, you know, as recently as like October 14th, you know, they were talking about fewer than 30 cases mm-hmm. in a seven-day average, right? And then it just like, it started to go up in early November, which, you know, I think happened in, in a lot of the country. And, you know, Janet Mills, good governor. She'd done a good job with this. She totally avoided the initial outbreak, avoided the summer surge. She inflicted real costs on the tourism industry o- over the summer. But like, as it started to go up, it was like, well, like, what can we do? Right. It's like, there's nothing we can do. Like, we can't make Thanksgiving illegal. So cases had gone up a little bit and then some people gathered over Thanksgiving and testing went down, you know, and then it was going up, up in December. I mean, this is this is the whole American story, but it's like such a tragic part of this is that such a huge share of the deaths came after the first vaccines were authorized because there was just like no ability, like social ability. There was no more resilience left. Like people didn't believe, I think people didn't believe that there was an end in sight. You know what I mean? So if you had, if you had told people, if there was a big holiday in April and you told people this year, you just, you got to cancel it. You know, Mm -hmm. you just like, you can't do it. And we're going to struggle through this. And six months from now, it's all going to be back to normal. But by the fall, so many people, not everybody, but it was like the minority of the public that didn't want to do this stuff had become convinced that it was never ended, right? That there was no plan. That like Dr. Fauci, while being beloved by 55% of the people, is like really hated by 25% of the people. Because there was never a like, here's Dr. Fauci's prescription, for like having a fun, awesome birthday party, you know, three months from now, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it was just like, it was yeah. like one more thing after another, right? And the the tougher measures, I think, like actually would have been more sustainable. Like if somebody had come out, you know, and this is like in part because Donald Trump is a very disorganized person, um, but also because I don't think he got great counsel. From people, mm-hmm. right? And that if you would come up with like a really organized plan, like this is going to be really difficult. We are going to do some stuff that's like out there, right? But like it's going to work. It will have measurable results such that in X time, we're going to be telling you, come back onto the subway, reopen your pizzeria. And if we need to do it again, we'll, we'll do it again. But that's what was so weird about the like, summer 2020 reopening because like some states were doing it and some people were saying like oh man you shouldn't do that it's too soon but it was like too soon for what right like what 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 were we waiting for and then when you look at a state like california that kept these restrictions in longer it's like nothing happened right like there was no there was no time at which like california fix this. And I think that made the more conservative people feel feel vindicated. And it's like important to raise the, the visibility of the fact that like you could do other 
stuff. And even on the testing, right, I, there was a story that I'd forgotten about that someone reminded me of last week. But, you know, this is in the early days of testing shortage. And somebody in a lab or a hospital in Washington state said, like, oh, we have all these flu samples, right? So we could just test all of them. And we could get a sense of how widespread the outbreak is in the state, right? Not individualized contact tracing, but like on a community level. And they were told that the people who had given those samples hadn't given informed consent to have COVID mm. tests performed. So you yeah. couldn't do it. And I mean, how many lives is it worth sacrificing for upholding that version of an informed consent principle? I mean, I would argue probably zero, mm -hmm. like not triple digits, you know? Right. And it's like, I, I, I wish we could, you know, like, re like really go back and look at these kinds of cases and like ask ourselves, like, like, do we think that was like the correct call? Like, is it really so unthinkable to like temporarily suspend some of our protocols around this to figure out what's, what's going on? Because we sacrificed a lot to try yeah. to stop this pandemic and didn't stop the pandemic. Like sacrificing mm -hmm. a little bit more to actually get the upside would be a much better bargain. Yeah. So I do want to ask, I mean, with, with the benefit of like Dylan, you know, being kind of in the home stretch of this big comparative reporting project, like so much of what we've talked about on this podcast over the course of the pandemic has been about this evolving relationship between scientific knowledge and public communication and public policy, um, which has, because the first has been evolving, has complicated what, you know, in theory would have been thought of as a very like straightforward, get the correct information out there operation and has made determining what the like scientifically informed public policy is a lot more complicated. And I'm wondering, like, that's not something that just having lived through MERS would necessarily prime you know, South Koreans for it. It wouldn't necessarily yeah. like it. A lot of a lot of the kind of, you know, undermining of government expectations was the the product of the, of seeing scientific knowledge evolve in real time and feeling that the level of confidence being espoused by public officials about what would happen didn't match like the changes in what we were learning from the science. So did you see any of that and you know was, was were there any of those kind of difficulties in communicating what safety would look like and how that related to what we could expect from the pandemic in a 6 month period or you know did they just was south korea just better at that than the us yeah that's a good question i mean so and maybe i'll answer it kind of indirectly but as matt was talking something i just kept thinking was you know one of the the biggest kind of arch lessons I learned from from this project was the the importance of time and the fact that like and just kind of having a plan and being able to act quickly kind of irrespective of the specifics uh, I think was a real value and and certainly south something that South Korea was primed to do uh, because uh, because they had just lived through MERS and set up these new protocols in the years since but uh, to your question Dara like you know something that that I picked up on, or I guess the the kind of hypothetical we can't run in the U.S. that the, that South Korea did is they did have this really effective initial response to the outbreak in Daegu, and you know cases really quickly collapsed. Like by the end of April, they were seeing less than a hundred 
cases a day. And as Matt was saying earlier, people were going back to the office, they were commuting on subways, restaurants were open again, etc. And so forth. And so I, I what I wonder, and, and I didn't ask anybody this directly, and now I wish I had, I wonder how much that initial success kind of did prime, like, it, not, not that they were primed before COVID ever showed up, but once they had this kind of tangible example of, okay, like, we can act quickly and the government can act competently and squelch uh, a cluster of COVID-19, that did that, like, engender more public trust in in the months that would follow? Because, like, South Korea did continue to see clusters pop up from time to time. They had a late summer surge. They had a surge over the winter uh, that required, you know, businesses to reduce capacity, that kind of thing. And in talking with health officials, they certainly said that, like, you know, people don't seem quite as uh, as enthralled with cooperating with contact tracing as they did at first, maybe. Like, there was, there's clearly a bit of burnout, even in South Korea, even though things have largely been open over the last year. And, like, you know, my co-author, uh, June Michael Park, uh, who did a lot of the on-the-ground reporting for us in South Korea... You know, he talked to a business, a pub owner who had had to like operate at 50% capacity for a while, lay off a couple of workers. Um, You know, he talked about losing sleep and just, you know, it it sounded like it'd been a pretty stressful year for him in spite of South Korea's relative success. And yet, like his kind of bottom line was, you know, I think the government did a good job of communicating to people what needed to be done. And I think people did a good job of of following what the government told them to do uh, or advised them to do. And and so that suggests to me that like that maybe because South Korea you know was able to act quickly and decisively and kind of had a proof point for people of like we have a plan and a playbook that works uh, that that might have instilled a little more faith in the government and kind of given people or people you know were were more willing to tolerate uh, some of the restrictive measures because because they had seen some success. Whereas in the U.S., as Matt was talking about and as you were talking about before, Dara especially because of the nature of the way that the outbreak unfolded, where you had clusters in New York and Washington, but people in Texas might have wondered, like, why did we shut down the bars again? It it, it was a lot, maybe it would have been more difficult for public health officials to make the case uh, that these interventions do actually work. Do you get a sense, like, is there a Korean, like, lessons learned in Korea? Like, is there a take on this that, like, this was good or like we need to change something up or we need to do something yeah, a little bit differently. I mean, it's fascinating to me that like America seems to have so little in the way of lessons learned, right? Like, right. I mean, Dara was saying it's like, yeah, like Congress doesn't legislate proactively. <laughs> like that's a hundred percent true. Um, it is still true though that like, I think this is like an unusual level of like political like lassitude, right? In which like there isn't a commission whose recommendations will be ignored. There isn't like a hyper-partisan, like here's how we're going to do the pandemic better next time that just like right. isn't going to pass, right? It's like everybody's kind of like, wow, man, that was <laughs> that was some weird shit. I just hope there's never any new infectious diseases. I mean, I think that the politics of urgency really does explain a lot of this, right? Because very few people, like, it takes a uh, great degree of confidence in the government's ability to walk and chew gum at the same time to say, even though we are still in a crisis, and even though there are lots of urgent problems, some of which are, you know, are results of things that happened last year, and some of which are not, 
um, that need to be taken care of right now, we also need to be addressing this thing that is in the rearview mirror. Uh, and, you know, so, so for the next time it comes up, like the idea that we have the luxury of, you know, the, the idea that like we are not in a state of crisis would be anathema to not only, you know, activists working on foreclosures and that kind of thing who are like looking down the pike and saying normality is going to pose a new kind of problem for us that has not existed for the last 12 months that we are going, you know, that like we are, that hasn't existed at the same scale that we're going to like be gearing up for. But also everybody who has been feeling more sensitized to issues of racial equity over the last year and to, you know, the idea that like what the, that the most important priority for the United States should be to operate from the premise of we can take a deep breath and look at what went right and what went wrong is just kind of a level of, I think, luxury that most people don't feel exists at present. Um, and I, I think that, you know, this kind of part to a certain extent, that's true, right? Like Congress is set up so that it should be able to do a bunch of things. And, you know, committees like this is why the committee system exists, right? So that you have members of Congress who have certain areas of expertise, whose staff has certain areas of expertise, and who just as a matter of scheduling can be operating in like multiple public fora at a time. Um, but the totalizing kind of nature of the pandemic and the increasing, you know, leadership centricity of Congress and the increasing expectation that legislation will come from and be shepherded through by the White House all mean that like the policy capacity is downstream of the kind of news cycle capacity. And when the news cycle is focused on the next, you know, the most imminent thing, there isn't as much political will in Congress to say, okay, but like these five backbench members, instead of, you know, being up on whatever has happened so that they can like go on Sunday shows to talk about things that they, based on their committee memberships, might not actually have that much direct ability to to affect, they're going to become like the people who are going to, at the end of this summer, present us with a package of legislation that we will then vote on and that, you know, won't have the downsides of being politicized by the news cycle, you know, but but will be in place so that the next time we need to have had laws already, they'll be there. Yeah, right. I mean, when you guys talk about this, all I hear are, you know, the, are the conversations I had uh, a year ago at this point when we were really in the thick of it of people saying, uh, experts saying like, yeah, we, we've never invented, invested in public health, uh, and we're not going to. Like, as soon as, as soon as this emergency is over, the urgency, as you say, Dara, uh, will dry up immediately and we will in all likelihood be just as kind of disorganized and, and kind of underprepared uh, as we were this time, which is, you know, our, our part of our goal, not to have too much presumption about our, our influence, but certainly the goal of this project is is to try to to, to look backwards and learn some of these lessons. Uh, and, so, you know, none of it, as we, as we said in the, in the intro, is going to be perfectly ap- applicable, but I still think you could look at some of these places that had, you know, specific policies that proved successful and you could 
at least it seems to me a worthwhile exercise to imagine how they might be applied in the U.S. And Matt, to your question about South Korea, you know, what's interesting is, you know, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. I I think they do feel uh, that this was a model that that clearly worked. Um, And so now it's it's more a matter of fine tuning. You know, you you do have uh, civil rights advocates who have sued the government over uh, its specific use at times of the uh, post-MERS reforms and specifically how they collected cell phone data. And so that reads to me as sort of like, that's like society or whatever, fun- um, kind of going through the uh, attrition process of figuring out like, all right, we did, we finally had a chance uh, to execute this plan. You know, what did we overstep it sometimes? How do we balance, you know, public health and privacy concerns? But it is much more a matter of, I think, fine tuning um, rather than where the U.S. is at, where like we clearly didn't have any kind of plan and we'd really be starting from scratch in in coming up with one, which maybe to your point, Dara, like maybe that's the first, maybe the totality of the American, the, the American failure was so total that like it's just too daunting to policy people uh, to, to, to try to figure out how to fix it. I don't know. All right, let's uh, let's take a break. Talk about something completely different because we're not fixing this. No. <laughs> <laughs> Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Uh, our uh, working paper today is Venture Capital's Me Too Moment by Sophie Calderwang, Paul Gompers, and Patrick Sweeney. Um, so this is interesting. They looked at, you guys may remember, there was a, a sort of a gender discrimination lawsuit that Ellen Powell uh, waged against Kleiner Perkins, which is a prominent venture capital fund. They look at the impact that this trial and the sort of publicity around it had on venture capital firms. And, you know, you have to make some assumptions here as to how to instrument that. Uh, but they, they, they sort of look at state level mandated maternity benefits to sort of show a kind of like background level, I guess, of like feminist political mobilization happening in, in different places. Um, and so they, they show that the trial they believe leads to more hiring of female uh, LPs 
at venture capital firms, and that you also see an increase in investments in women-founded firms, but that that increase is entirely driven by the hiring of more women partners at the VC firms, that the male VCs don't become any more interested in investing in, in women founders, but that some of the firms hired more women limited partners, and those women invested in more founders. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's both like, I'm not 100% sure that the chain of causal reasoning here is correct, uh, but it's, a, it's at least plausible. And it's an interesting, the, the downstream finding that like the, the representation among the VCs makes a big difference, you know, I think is, is also interesting because so many venture capitalists are former founders, right? They, they've sort of cashed out and now they've run these firms. So you can see how you could get in a kind of, um, you know, a lock-in path, which is, you know, not great. I, yeah, I do want to kind of uh, talk through your skepticism about the the causal chain a little bit more, because I shared it, like, you know, when we were first considering this white paper, you know, my initial reaction was that this made a lot of intuitive sense to me, because a lot of attempts to connect news stories to you know, behavior, you have to assume that the people in, who would be changing their behavior were really paying attention to that news story and like thinking about whether they needed to do things differently in response. And I can totally buy that in the case of venture capital, a, you know, a particular industry with a very great sense of its own importance, but also like populated by people who are likely to be up in the workings of the venture capital industry, because that's part of the job, probably were following the Ellen Powell trial very closely. And then I look at like how it's actually instrumented in this paper and it's Google search volume. And I am general, I mean, obviously like it's better to be using Google search volume to instrument interest uh, than it is to use it to instrument like those, you know, terrible meme maps that are like everybody's favorite Thanksgiving side dish by most Googled, which is like not how I I'm definitely not trying to Google things because I like to eat them. It seems like I would need more empirical validation that like this was a way that Google searching is a way that the venture capitalists in question get their news as opposed to having a clipping service, for example, or like following it on Twitter. Um, you know, it's so so. I think I think that that's kind of that that is what's what's motivating certainly my skepticism here. But yeah, I mean the, the the robustness of the downstream results seems pretty independent of that, right? That like it's especially because it it confirms one theory of why um diversity in hiring matters by dis and by disproving another one. Cuz simultaneously there have been these kind of HR driven narratives that uh representation matters because you know, the perspective that an under a previously underrepresented group would like bring to the table is useful and will help everybody get better ideas. Uh, and on the other hand, the idea that representation matters because like people will look out for members of their own group. And if you don't have anybody from a group in the room, nobody's going to be able to look out for members of that group. And the finding here really Co comes in hard on the second camp, uh, making it pretty clear that it's not that like, you know, whatever the equivalent of the water cooler is, I guess, like the bulletproof coffee machine in like mid 2000s or mid 2010 Silicon Valley, that like it wasn't that male partners were talking to their newly hired female colleagues and going, oh, gee, I never thought of, you know, asking a founder this question or, oh, I had thought this was a liability for this particular person. But like now that I'm seeing how women interact in the workplace, I now understand that it's just a gender difference. Um, that 
that appears to not be a, a viable mechanism, or at least like wasn't in this case. It was the people who had probably been on the other side of those interactions before went, this is a potential exploitable source of value for us because these female founders are probably getting undervalued by the market as a whole. Yeah. Uh, to, to put that, uh, to maybe put it crassly, it seemed to me that the implication here was, yeah, like male venture capitalists will make what maybe they think of as like token hires if they feel bad because they've been seeing this coverage of the trial. Um, but they're not like, you know, it's not like they've had any kind of internal conversion of change of heart. They're still going to gravitate towards uh, projects founded by men. But as you're saying, Dara, it, it does still seem to be to kind of validate the whole premise of representation that if you introduce uh, more diversity, then you'll have you know better outcomes for a more diverse set of people. So I did think it was interesting that they they it seemed like, you know, if we buy into the construct of the study that they kind of maybe maybe uh, provided some kind of empirical evidence of the the mechanism by which representation drives uh, you know more investment into my more diverse uh, projects but I, I have to say too that like I kind of loved I don't know if you guys were familiar with this or not it, it sounded vaguely familiar to me and I, I'd be curious if there's more of a kind of uh, methodological foundation for this than just this one study but they singled out that they were using an approach similar to another study that had uh, looked at the effect of MTV 16 and pregnant and its effect on teen pregnancy rates. Um, so I did, it did seem like they at least had, you know, it wasn't something that they totally came up with on their own. They had some kind of reference point, but I don't know if that really means this is, this is methodologically sound or not, but I just thought that was a great, that, that other study sounded like a white paper I would love to dig into at some point. Oh yeah, no, you should totally, the 16 and pregnant study is like, you know, I have, I've seen that finding before and it's, it's, you know, kind of, it very much our, you know, the sort of thing that gets people like you and me and Matt geeked out, right? <laughs> like this existing social trend is easily distilled in this one data point with a super clear mechanism. Um, but, you know, I, I think that what I find myself looking for in cases like this is just a little bit of indication that like, like theorizing first that there's been a little bit of empirical work done to figure out like ethnographically, like what, you know, if this is the population that we're trying to study, what are what are the things that they consider important? Like, what are their media intakes? What are, you know, what are the factors that they are paying? What are the indicators they are paying attention to? Um, and that, that, you know, I think that the more robust a sense you have of that, the more robust a finding of news impacting behavior is likely to be. Whereas if you're just speculating on, well, if I were this sort of person, here's how I would be doing things. E it could, you know, at a certain level, you're just coming up with a plausible, you know, you're coming up with a with a just so story. Well, I mean, what you really love to see, you know, in, in general in this kind of research is more um, pre-registering of hypotheses and accounts of which things didn't pan out. Uh, because, you know, there's like a lot of stuff out there and a lot of good computers these days and a lot of Google searches uh, that you can sort of run through, right? You know, what, what was interesting about the 16 pregnant study is that it's so um, singular, right? The idea, there was not a broad cultural conversation about teen pregnancy, particularly at that time. There was this specific show that was that was popular. Um, the, the, the Alan Powell trial, you know, was an important news event, but I would not say that that was like the only instance of people hearing about gender diversity in the technology 
industry, right? Like, mm-hmm. and like women's representation is like a thing people are talking about all the time. And there are a lot of different dimensions to it, right? And so like one argument could be, it's like you could look at a universe of stories that were related to this and be like, no, like only Ellen Powell Google searches break through and show this. Or it could be that you see like a broad cluster of sort of related things. I'd have to look back like what else was in the news in in 2015. Like I had forgotten that this lawsuit had ever occurred Mm. until I saw this paper, but I wasn't like unaware of the, the topic you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, like I, I, I know a woman who started a small, like all woman partners venture capital firm to only invest in women founded tech startups. You know, like this is like a thing that people talk about on a, on a number of different levels over time, um, in a way that seems like less distinctive. Right. I mean, even going back to like the title of the paper, like. Venture Capital's Me Too moment, like Me Too as a th- as a meme, wasn't wouldn't have been recognizable at the time because that comes that's a fall 2017 product. <laughs> All right, uh, that's the meets. Um, thank you so much, uh, Dylan Scott. Thanks as always to our sponsors and our producer Eric Janakis. And the weeds will be back on Friday. <laughs> 